All right, as everyone's being seated, let me, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, thank you for the chance to, again, gather and think about the bride, the church, your love for her, so much that you sent Christ to die for her and that you continue to make her beautiful and sanctify her. Lord, help us to fall more in love with not only your bride, but with Christ the bridegroom. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, all right, so we are continuing our study of uh, the church. Uh, a, I think really a biblical teaching, a doctrine that's been neglected um, and overlooked in many circles of the church. So we began by looking at some images of the church, biblical images. Uh, last week, Sean did a great job looking at the church as the body and how that means there's uh, a unity and a need to use our gifts. He looked at the bride, uh, that there needs to be love in the body of Christ, um, and also that it's a building, the temple. And that means we're a worshiping body. And I looked at the church as family, the church as the dwelling place of God, which was really showing us also that in the Old Testament, God was with his people, really beginning in the garden, and that really there's one church, one people of God throughout. Um, and I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes uh, before Dave Larson jumps up here and takes us on our next topic with one last image. And I began with a question, a multiple choice question, some of you weren't here, so I'm going to do it again. And if you were here, don't give it away, okay? So I want to ask you, there's uh, choice A. Do you think yourself as being holy, choice A, or do you think, how many, well, I'll do both, and then, or B, as becoming holy? A, that you're holy, or B, becoming holy. How many think of yourself primarily as holy? How many of you think of yourself primarily as becoming holy? All right, so there is a C. See, some people knew. Both. It's like one of the SAT questions, you know, A, A and B, or A, B, and C. So uh, it's both. First um, Corinthians 1, 2 says this. To those sanctified in Christ, to those holy in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So here's Paul calling the Corinthians. He says, to those who are holy in Christ Jesus, I'm calling you to be saints. So one of the images I want us to think of is what does it mean when it talks about saints? You know, Paul writes uh, to the uh, Corinthians. He writes to the Philippians, the Ephesians. And he says, to the saints in Philippi. So what is he doing with that language? Again, what does it mean to be sanctified? In Hebrews 10... He writes, by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's this double idea with sanctification. We usually think of progressive sanctification, where we grow or become more holy, which is completely valid. But there's also something called definitive sanctification, this idea that we are holy, that we are perfected, that because we are in Christ, God sees us as righteous. And that's oftentimes said that we are both saints and sinners. Uh, so we are holy, but we are becoming holy. Uh, we are seen as holy. Now it's interesting if you think about the Corinthian church. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. I wrote to you, church, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So it's interesting, isn't it, that he's calling the church the saints and they were really messed up. So much so they were breaking his heart, causing tears. There was friction. There was conflict. 
Um, and I think it's significant because what Paul is doing is he is not defining the church by its problems and weaknesses. He doesn't look at the church and say, man, that is the church that fails in this place. He says, no, these are saints set apart by Christ, so how can I help them grow into holiness? And that's why he writes these letters, to help them in their progressive sanctification by rooting them in their definitive sanctification. You are in Christ. He loves you. You are his. Now let me help you grow into the reality of what you are. Because for Paul, the state of the church was discouraging, and it can be discouraging for us as well. And today, particularly the last five, ten years, everyone's been looking at the flaws of the church, which are true and real. Paul didn't disregard those, but he said, but there's something that's more true, and that's the lens through which I'm going to see the body of the church. Um, there's a, a great article by Tim Challies called Sanctification or Holiness as a Community Project, and the idea that when we think about holiness, so often we think about it just me and my holiness, but Scripture really emphasizes the way we become holy is through the body of Christ, through our relationships with one another, hence all the one another passages. Even in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments were given to the people of God, not just to individuals to obey, but, hey, remember what God has done for you, the people of God. Now, this is how you should live in response to that. Um, and so, again, if we're thinking about that, we need to recognize that the church is going to be filled with differing uh, degrees of maturity and sanctification. So, so let's think of some practical applications. Uh, I'll give you a quick five things on how the church can make us be holy, but we won't have time to develop them because I want to hand it off to Dave here in a sec. What are practical implications if we begin to see the church as the saints, those who are set apart and holy in Christ? What are ways that it can change how we impact with one another, how we talk about the local church as well as the universal church. What are some implications, do you think? Yeah, yeah, we point people to Jesus. We point the church and one another to Jesus. What else? Okay, we extend grace to one another and, and develop that just a little bit. I'll butcher it, so I won't try to make an exact quote, but I think it was C.S. Lewis who kind of said, look at people as they will be in the new heavens and the new earth rather than how you see them now. And we tend to see people's flaws and shortcomings rather than saying, no, they are in Christ. One day they will be made new. And so it kind of can change how you look towards people who maybe differ with you or kind of uh, aren't as mature as you would like. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Michael. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. We, we know God is doing something. He promises to do this. It may be, not be in the time and the space 
in this uh, way we we would want it. Let me give just a couple things that I want to uh, honor Dave's time here. So there's five ways. These are from Megan Hill's book on the local church, uh, that the way the church is designed to help us in our holiness. First, it's through uh, sanctification through the word. Think about Jesus' prayer in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. And we're called to speak the word of God to one another, encourage each other, uh, to help each other in temptation. Uh, part of it, praying. Remember the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we should be praying not only for our own personal holiness, but for one another's holiness. Uh, we should promote holiness in, the, in one another. Paul speaks several places about, hey, don't trip other believers up. Help encourage them to walk appropriately. Um, so we should also be a model of holiness, speaking the truth in love, having both parts. And then fifth, um, we should push each, towards, each other towards repentance and restoration. And that one will be developed in another week. But there's I just want you to begin to think again. Sanctification is a community project. We are saints, both holy and being made holy. And that should really make us more hopeful, more gracious, more forgiving, more persistent, more prayerful in the way we love the church. So with that, I'm going to let Dave come up, and he's going to get to talk a little bit about some of the messiness of this church when there are problems and how do we think about the church. And he has some great categories for us. Better? There you go. Okay. Yeah, unless you think that Dan was just phoning that in, I think I was supposed to supply slides for him as well, so that's why it was dark. Um, but I treat him like an indie band before the main event, so I didn't want him to be that good. So I was like, <laughs> do with the black screen. You'll enjoy that. All right. Okay, so the topic is, again, this visible, invisible, and membership. Those are... Um, Really, no, none of those words really show up in the, in the Old or New Testament in descriptions for the church in, in, um, in this specific way. So those are terms that we're using that I think actually do a great job of explaining things. Um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, you know, I haven't taught much before y'all, um, but I like to be conversational in style, so this will be a discussion. It'll be also great for my voice since it's kind of on its last leg. Uh, so make sure that, you know, you're jumping in. Um, I probably won't um, drone on. Uh, hopefully this will be um, a good discussion, right? Right. Okay. Okay, so these are common experiences within, you know, what has been your experience of the church. Now, before you answer, because I do want to hear, keep them general. That way it's helpful to folks because they can relate. If you get super specific and start with, well, this one time that Dan Seal hurt me, then it's going to be less helpful to folks. So just keep it general and then, um, you know, we can kind of um, hopefully have some share, shared experiences. Okay, so jump in. Have you been, ever been exhausted with your experiences at church? I know some folks have. Um, what's the other one? Uh, does it feel like this church or modern church just isn't like what the New Testament church is? So jump in. Give me some experiences, positive and negative, um, as believers. 
Mm. Okay. So for those that couldn't hear, and also I think this is for a podcast, Michael was just explaining how there's so many things going on in the church that are all good. During the pause with COVID, it was kind of a chance to reevaluate and um, I guess take stock of what you guys were doing and you know avoiding exhaustion. What else? So growth and benefit from the church, absolutely. Okay, so family, close-knit family. What else? Right. Yeah, so uh, again, it's like you were quoting the book that a lot of this comes from Enduring Community, and it talks about the messiness of, uh, of church in chapter four. Uh, I think it's a great term to describe a lot going on. Narvson? Seven times, I think, 
in our in our life. And each church has something new that you're going to experience and that you're going to learn. And there's expectations and things. And you're like, do I want to do this? Where do I fit in the midst of that? And so churches have a culture. And so the question about your what has been your experience, there's something unique about each one that you're learning. And it's the people, right? Right. That's great. Good. Good. If you didn't catch both of those comments, um, Narvison was talking about how all these churches have their own culture. It takes a little bit of getting used to uh, because it represents different people, different locations, different geographies. But then, you know, on the flip side, you have this really nice unification even without, you know, with, with these differing cultures, right? So I think that's something we've experienced as well. Okay, so my personal experience with church started off with First Baptist Church of Norfolk. I grew up in Virginia Beach. And um, the thing that I remember most, uh, my, you know, just sort of zone of experience was being in a very good youth group uh, from eighth grade through, you know, my senior year. Um, it was maybe 200 people, so it was big. Um, it was something that I was a, a big part of and found leadership in, even though, you know, most of you would probably consider me a little bit uh, high test. Then, like then, it was sort of, you know, I was undiagnosed, you know, hyperactivity disorder. I probably would be listed in the actual medical book of this is what you get. But they were incredibly gracious to me. Uh, Mike James was my youth pastor. He would have me and some other folks that were kind of leaders within the youth group. So very positive experience. Um, then going to Virginia Tech, I already had a basis of attendance and loved it. And then my roommates also attended. So we went to Blacksburg Christian Fellowship, which is a, a good evangelical, broad-based um, uh, church. Uh, within there, uh, one of the pro professors of my organic chemistry was actually a teaching elder. And I always thought that if I had great attendance in the front row, it would help, and it, it did not. Um, <laughs> I had a solid C minus in that class for, you know, Dr. Kinston, and um, it didn't help, so that might be a negative for me with church experiences, but in general, it was great. Um, really enjoyed being there, and over that time, I started counseling. I was a, a camp counselor at Camp Oil Run, uh, you know, Lake Gaston, and uh, that's where I, I met Gordon Duncan, who was a member here at Redeemer and became a little bit more reformed in my theology, read some John Calvin, um, and then kind of found myself a little bit out because I didn't know who or which church would even uh, uh, represent some of those viewpoints. And then I ended up at All Saints PCA, which is a small family-based church, PCA, in Richmond. Um, Howard Griffith was the pastor there. He passed a few years ago. Um, and again, it was mostly families, but it was a very encouraging time for me. Again, being very reformed and being like a hardcore Calvinist 
had not met with now the sort of um, uh, the godliness that a lot of folks at All Saints um, had grown into. And so being there for many years, I became a deacon there, learned to serve in a little bit better way, not just sort of uh, on my own. I'm Dave Larson. I can do anything. It became more I'm a deacon. Now I am with many godly men, and it became a great, great time. So um, also, it, uh, there was a couple there introduced me to uh, my wife, Anne, and so that's, you know, a positive. Um, and then coming down for a job, I knew Gordon Duncan, I alluded that to Camp Oil Run, and ended up coming to Redeemer uh, with Terry Trailer and Leonard Bailey. Gordon went off to, to uh, plant in Garner, and uh, we both felt like I wasn't going to move to Garner, for sure, and um, uh, it was, you know, 20 years ago, so, you know, it was, it was not where I was going, and, and certainly Ann was not going there. So we stayed here and just grew into, you know, um, uh, you know members at, at Redeemer. So, and now, you know, my story at Redeemer, I've been here, shockingly, I think it's 18, 19 years, uh, have served as a deacon, now serve as an elder here, uh, did some youth, um, you know, it's been a, really as a whole, um, an enjoyable time for me. Uh, I, I'm sorry I don't have, I should have thrown something in there that, you know, I went to, I don't know, I was drug running for the, you know, Mexican cartel. I was not. Like, it's just been a very smooth ride, and I, you know, uh, give all glory to the Lord for that. I haven't had to have pain away from the church because it's been with me and been an encouragement uh, for all my life. Okay, so what are the different ways that church in Scripture is used? I mean, there's a couple of ways. So throw out to me, how is church used in Scripture? A concept, that's right. Great. Yep, local body of believers. What else? That's right. The whole body of Christ. Yep. Anything else? It's a little bit of a piggyback with the local, but then talk about the church as universal, but geographically universal. So if I say the church, I can mean here. Let me shoot these out. The elect, the local church, like Corinth or Redeemer, and then the church across geography. So if I say the church... I can also mean this, def, you know, um, definite size in North Raleigh, and there's hundreds of churches here that are proclaiming Christ. So there's three different things going on. The second two are are a little bit more similar, and then the elect, the church. Okay. All right. I'm, all right. He, Helms is messing me up, and I'm put that for the podcast, but. Yeah, that's gonna de- that's gonna delineate a little bit, but yeah, that'll definitely come up. Okay, so the invisible church, and this is what I think Helms probably saw my slide pack and jumped in there. So, this is the invisible church. Um, the way we define the the universal or the invisible church is also the Westminster Confession of Faith twenty five one, which does an excellent job. 
Sometimes I'm a little mystified that we're trying to rewrite things that have been written pretty well. Um, so I think it gives a lot of wisdom. We think about the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him that uh, fills all in all. So if you go all the way back to Abraham, and in, you know, in faith he was found to be righteous, he's a believer. And then as you go through the Old Testament, Rahab, again, believing God's promises, was a believer. And King David was a believer. And then we go into the New Testament, and you have the disciples that were believers. And we are believers, and then there will be believers after we are gone if the Lord does not come first, and they are believers, okay? So that is the universal church, also known as the invisible church, and it's all of the elect, okay? And this is also a scene that God is seeing as perspective, okay? So this is God's perspective on, on his people. Then contrasting that, is the visible church. And the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, meaning it is not bound by a nation of Israel, but it's just the people of God now, but still visible, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children. And is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So if you look into the globe there, it's the church universal, and that's geographically universal, right? But then it's man's perspective. So when we look at what is the body of Christ, when we look from a man's perspective, we see the visible church. And then... Who is that? It's professing adults and their children. Because we believe in the covenant which God gives to us and our children, which is present in the Old and New Testament. So the visible church is professing believers and their children. Now, the tag at the end gives us some flexibility, also gives us relief. So it says, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation meaning the visible church as a regular representation of God's people on earth from our perspective, those are all represented in the church. Now, it's always good to look back and go, well, that feels very firm. That, you know, what about you know, the, the guy on the island who hasn't heard and he's got faith and you know, brings up those questions. What the Westminster and really does in Omit's all of its content is pushing back against the doctrines of the Catholic Church. So you have to remember when this was written. So the Catholic Church said that there is no possibility of salvation outside the church, which the Westminster divines felt was a strong statement, probably overly extra-biblical. And so they made it so there's no ordinary possibility. So that, again, if if there is someone that is saved in true faith at a Billy Graham concert and does not join a local congregation, we are not going to doctrinally 
accuse them of not being in the visible church, so therefore there's no possibility of salvation. Okay, so you get the rub there. Any comments or questions about that? It's weighty, um, but important to discuss. Okay, so then I get to show a Venn diagram, because that's what everyone does, apparently, when they talk about these two things. If you take the two circles, invisible, invisible, and bring them, you have this overlap. And so you're looking at the overlap of in Christ, in the church. So invisible and invisible combine, and there's this overlap of people that are in the church now, invisible, uh, excuse me, in the visible church, represent the invisible people of God from God's perspective, okay? Okay, so what's the best case scenario if we were going to do the Venn diagram? What would be best case, best practice? Um, what would make things easier? Perfect overlap. Right. Because the circles do the same. Right, so again, showing one circle rather than kind of two circles and then an oblong thing that I, I made on um, PowerPoint. Okay, so that would be best, but how could it be possibly, just thinking ahead to my next slide, how could that be possibly counterproductive? What could be the danger in trying to get those to overlap completely? Good. So uh, it was said, again, nothing is perfect. You have to leave some room for, for imperfection. Go ahead. That's a great point. No, that's a great point. So again, the confusion, if only the church represents the elect, and if that church, therefore, is also, you know, in doctrine, uh, no longer preaching the, the true gospel of Christ, you're in a dilemma, right? That's great. Go ahead, Goose. Now, that's a great comment. So again, the state can influence the church in eradicating it, um, and that could be detrimental if we're only saying the church represents the elect. A few more. Go ahead. Yeah, it makes me tired just thinking about that. <laughs> right, trying to drive out every hypocrite from the church. All right, and let me do the last one. Go ahead. Or the opposite. You, you say, that's way too hard, so you just treat everyone in the church like they have perfect faith. And you just, you, you end up with a bunch of people that think they're Christians and maybe they're not. Right, so the flip side, if we don't pursue this purism, then we're going to 
pursue a uh, laissez-faire approach to, to attendees, and that's going to have its own trouble. So it's always nice when you guys are able to answer all these things before I show them on the slide. So that's, that is literally the problem. So to harmonize the invisible and visible church, you run into these two problems. The problem of, if you will, tightening the visible church so there's no overlap that does not represent the invisible would be rigorism or purism or again, hyper-shepherding. So rigorism is defined as having expectations on believers that they will always and fully represent the full maturity of a believer. Which, in definition, already sounds wrong because you know that people are in different places as they grow in the Lord and their sanctifying process. Which is not to say they're not fully righteous. It just means that people are on different paths. I am not the same person I was 18 years ago uh, at Redeemer. You would expect growth. And then hyper-shepherding, uh, I think another term for that recently has been um, when elders uh, are covering. Uh, there's been some of that. I'm not disparaging it because I don't know enough about it. But covering is where elders become very, very involved with your day-to-day -day decisions. Who I should marry? Should I buy the house? Should I buy this car? Again, there's nothing wrong with talking to an elder or, you know, someone in the church about your decisions. That would be great. But then as elders step in and begin to kind of get used to stepping in, almost like it's their authority, then they are now going against what the New Testament describes as being overbearing as an elder. And that can be a problem. But then we go to the other side. What's that? Umbrella shepherding? Okay, yeah. And it was kind of, I mean, every, I mean, you guys know, every 30 years, the same thing just shows up as a repackaged new thing. And this has happened over and over where churches or movements have been this umbrella or covering or hyper-shepherding. But then on the flip side is this indifferentism where we just let people be who they're going to be, laissez-faire, and let Lord, the Lord build them up. Permissiveness or egalitarianism, and I don't mean that in the sense of, um, you know, where we talk about women in the church, egalitarianism would mean we don't see leadership in the church as having any other benefit other than they are, you know, members in a congregation. So both of those are an attempt to have one circle, but both of them are flawed in their process and they're flawed in their experiences. And a lot of people hurt in the church, experienced one of those two things. Okay. Rigorism towards covenant children or new believers. I thought of this. It was probably too late uh, when I was working on this slide pack. That's why Darth Vader makes it. But he's got that scene where he says to I don't know, the captain, I find your lack of faith troubling. And then he force chokes that guy. So sometimes what it can look like in rigorism, especially within our families, and this is not my idea of combining rigorism with indifferentism, this is uh, Vern Poitras, uh, 97, fantastic, uh, he was a professor at Westminster, fantastic paper on 
looking at both of those within the Christian family, rigorism, comes up as when we either take their membership and apply the same dysfunction we would to someone that is new in faith, having expectation that they're going to be perfected in Christ. So you have covenant kids here. We believe that they are engrafted into Christ, just like the Westminster says. We believe that they are members of this congregation. But sometimes, in that belief, we can be nervous too. And we see their uh, disobedience. We see their sin. We see their immaturity in the gospel. And then we tighten that grip, all right, and do the uh, Darth Vader, you know, choke hold on them. So that's something that we have to be careful of. Don't be Darth Vader. The other one is indifferentism towards our covenant children. Either we don't believe in the covenant, or we believe so much again in the covenant that we are no longer actively working with our children. Also, I will say back with rigorism and indifferentism, something that can be really difficult is when covenant children are pulling away from the Lord. Sometimes that's just normal differentiation as they develop into their own people. And we can see that as a pulling away. Or sometimes it can be a lifelong of covenant children, um, again, going down the way of the younger son in the, in the prodigal story. Has to find out things their own way. Can be very difficult times. We can lose faith. And then we kind of go back and forth. I'm going to go really hard on my kid or I'm going to go really soft on my kid and we just don't know where to go with that. I don't have answers for that. I just, I would say both of those have been recognized as, as errors. And so something that we all need to work on as I raise two boys, which many times, is my wife in here? Is she going to? Oh, good. Oh, is she there? No? Good. She will not, she will not tell on me that um, I... I do very poorly with holding some of these boundaries sometimes. Okay, well, biblical membership is the answer to these extremes that are not going to be profitable for the body. So membership should be the expression of sincere faith and vows that reflect the historic inclusion in the church body, simply stated. And we do this by looking through the church, Old and New Testament. I have mostly New Testament here, and we get to see the characteristics of the church that, um, that Christ, through his apostles, uh, developed. So we see shepherding. We see congregants putting themselves under shepherds. We see shepherds that are uh, in kindness, um, shepherding their people. We see aspects of worship and submitting to one another more shepherding, you have church discipline, which is the case of, what, 1 Corinthians, where something was happening that not even would happen outside the church typically, uh, sexual sin, and um, how they um, discipline. And they have the assembling, do not forsake the assembling together, confession and shepherding, Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, and then giving in 1 Corinthians. So, all this is done with the judge of charity. This should illuminate all of us when we look at the membership for Redeemer and most gospel churches. It's, do you have a credible profession of faith? And then, are you willing to take these vows 
which represent a very, very common, understood dynamic that was in the early church. Does that make sense? So, yes, membership does not show up in the New Testament, but membership is a configuration to help us find the same bar that was used then. Okay. Any comments about that? Yeah, I mean, in, the, in Ephesians where it talks about all these uh, um, structures where men and women or authority, it has that same implicit thought about being in authority under these, um, these folks that God has put over you, and that includes the church. Go ahead. That's great. Yeah, so again, the discussion is just we are called out of the world into something and membership represent, represents what we're called into. Go ahead. Right, uh, and just to summarize again, it's, a, it's an error, a biblical error, to think as a Christian, I represent an individualism with God, rather when the example is one, you know, 100% of what's re- represented in the Old and New Testament is, again, within his church and that growth. So membership protects, encourages, affirms, regulates, maintains, directs, and perfects followers of Jesus and their children. So it takes, again, the mystery away of how do we come to here? We've come here by looking at the example of the New Testament and Old Testament and understanding that form and function and how it grows us in maturity. So some examples we can celebrate with membership. Again, I went through my experience of church. Uh, you know, since being in youth group all the way now, I mean, I am not who I was. And no doubt, a, you know, a lot of that is being 
committed to the church, um, so I can grow in things that I probably would not grow, just as those that are married, you know, that, that spouse presses on things that you did not know, you know, were, was there, and you go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a horrible human being in this aspect. I've never realized that. But being married, you're like, oh, okay, that's someone telling me, you know, in my face right now. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> telling me that, okay, this is going on. Same with the church. So the church is subject to sinners with tendency, prejudices, and error in government, leadership, and fellowship. Despite these challenges, Christ still reigns through his church until we are brought to glory. Again, I'm reminded of the 1960s in good churches, they were restricting African-Americans from attending. There were folks that would stay in the front, at the front steps, kind of how we do greeting, but they were just making sure that African-Americans were not entering their church. That is a error. Um, but we're still looking to the church as an, as an institution that is set apart by God to represent earthly what is true universally in his perspective. So the church, the body of Christ, is presently manifested in visible groups of believers who have real problems and will disappoint some of our expectations. Some of that should mean to us that when the church fails you, and it will, I just met with um, a gal from Redeemer, and the church has failed her. And so when we go into that, and we know that the church can fail us because it represents all of these tendencies and prejudices and all these poor things, just like every other institution that is here on earth, when we recognize that that's the reality of our situation, sometimes it can take a little bit of that edge away and understand, no, this doesn't represent the um, invisible church, the elect, what God would have for us. This represents, again, what you would expect when you have sinful people part of, um, of that institution. Well, I think that's it. Okay, any other comments? Uh, I know I'm coming up on time, so I can pray for us, but if there's anything else to be said? Okay, I'll pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the leaders in the church, and we thank you for the congregants that are so patient with leadership that goes poorly. We thank you that you have been so clear in your word and uh, you have graciously given us this institution so that we can grow in you. We lift these things in your name. Amen.